Today, we're excited to share the second part of an episode recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic with UCLA social well-being expert, Dr. Ted Robles. In last week's episode, Ted defined and discussed the importance of social well-being as a social determinant of health. Join us as Ted and I continue our conversation, where we will be exploring how social well-being affects the biological processes behind stress, how social media can hijack our reward systems, and much more. In your research, in your lab, you talk about two sets of biological Mm -hmm. processes. Uh, And I'd love you to um, describe what you mean by allostatic processes and restorative. Yeah. Well, allostatic is a term that I believe he was a physiologist by trade, Peter Sterling coined, I want to say in the late 1980s. And then one of the big researchers in our field who studies stress, Bruce McEwen, really took that up and, and coined the term allostatic load. Now, what allostasis basically is, is... When we are faced with challenges in life, we have to change, and we have to change physiologically in order to deal with those changes. Uh, and so this the, the sort of classic thing would be any kind of physiological changes that occur because you're being chased by a scary person or animal, or because you're facing an impending, um, you, have to give a, you have to give a lecture to your class and you're sort of nervous to talk in front of people. So these are all kind of changes in our environment. We, uh, we have to adapt to them in some way, whether through increasing the amount of energy that our brain and our body needs to manage those challenges, to prepare for threats like getting wounded, to increase the amount of blood oxygenization because I need to use blood oxygen in order to fight or flee. So all of those changes that we go through when we face some change in the environment, those are what others and myself term allostatic processes, maintaining survival through change. But of course, usually those things end. Uh, So, you know, it's not that I'm running from a lion that's chasing me forever. At some point, the lion goes away. And so now I'm left back to recover and uh, restore uh, the energy that I uh, restore stored energy or, or start to store energy again, I should say, repair any wounds that I've encumbered as a result of fighting off the lion. Uh, and so restorative processes have to do with the things that are involved in repairing and bringing our systems back to before we faced whatever challenge it was. A lot of repair related things from the level of wound healing to DNA repair would be included. Mechanisms involved in energy storage. So going instead of breaking down glycogen to make glucose, storing it back up again mm-hmm. uh, and storing back up uh, you know, energy in the form of lipids. Those are all restorative processes. And so sometimes you're going to need to engage in allostatic processes to cope with change. And then there's going to be a lot of other times where you're just going to need to repair and restore back. Mm-hmm. And that's what the restorative processes are. So how would your body respond to a constant threat? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you actually that is a great question. deal yeah. and right. actually trigger restorative processes if you recognize this and can, like, right. through meditation? Right. I don't know what yeah, it would be. Absolutely. But. Yeah, and that's sort of, so I think about something like noise pollution, for example. If you live in an area where, you know, you're constantly being exposed to pretty high levels of noise all the time and it never remits, right? Can one truly ever have a period where 
you know, your systems are at a point where you could start to re-engage those processes again? And probably the answer is to some degree no. So when I think about how psychological, well, when I think about how factors could disrupt these restorative processes, I, I usually like to think of like a home remodeling analogy and how home remodeling could go wrong. So one is that... <laughs> Doesn't it always yeah, go wrong? Yeah, I guess wrong. it always goes wrong, right. <laughs> That's so, why I've never done that. <laughs> right, right. So one possibility is that the materials that you use, they are they just don't work as well, right? So like you get some drywall that's effective for some reason or maybe some screws wear too much or something like that. And so likewise, some of the materials that we might be using to, or, or the processes that we use to repair ourselves might not go as well as we would like. So DNA repair mechanisms, for example. So you could imagine that under a, a conditions of constant exposure to you know, you name the, the problematic thing, that while we have mechanisms to repair DNA, they may not work as well mm-hmm. uh, all the time. And so you may not get repair as reliable as you would like, and mm-hmm. then you have cells wa- running around that uh, have some slight, you know, slight mutations in the code that they use when they're when they're doing their regular activities. Hmm. Uh, and then, you know... And maybe, what happens then? And then later on, and then maybe at worst, you have cells that accumulate enough mutations where they develop into, say, cancer cells oh, or something like that. Right? That's kind of, you know, the accumulation of multiple mutations. Got but it. certainly all of that uh, kind of starts with faulty DNA repair. Uh-huh. Okay, and so, that's what you hear a lot when right. people say, oh, this person was in a lot of stress. Right, right. And they exactly. developed cancer. Right, right. It's got to be one it has to be one among many things that go wrong. Right. But certainly it could be one of the things that goes uh-huh. wrong. Um, another possibility is that the repair just takes now this is a very common, you know, kind of home remodeling complaint, which is that the repair just takes longer than I would have wanted to. Right. So I think that's where a lot of the delayed wound healing becomes really, it is relevant. So in wound healing, if your innate immune system is busy cleaning up all the bacteria that have invaded your wound and they're not cleaning it up in a timely manner, that wound is going to take longer to heal. Mm. And so, again, this is where this repair process is supposed to happen. Ideally, you would like it to happen within a certain time frame, but it takes longer. Mm-hmm. And so if you're exposed to chronic conditions, you could imagine things being prolonged. And then the third thing is that sort of normal processes that you would use to kind of do things like store energy, that they go awry. So my favorite example of this is disruptions to sleep and what they do to insulin resistance. Mm. Uh, So you could imagine that we evolved a mechanism where, sure, after a short night of sleep in our ancestral environment, it was really important for us to maintain high circulating levels of glucose because maybe that was adaptive. Mm -hmm. You know, the reason I wasn't sleeping was because you know, some kind of problem was happening in my, in, in my environment. Maybe there was an invading tribe or something like that. And we had to move quickly to get to another place to safety. And because I'm not sure I'm safe yet, it would be helpful for me to have high levels of circulating blood glucose. Mm-hmm. Well, nowadays, why don't we get enough sleep? It's because I stayed up late looking at my phone and, um, you know, doing some other things. It wasn't because I was really concerned about my well-being, but my body doesn't, you know, like about my survival, but my body doesn't know that. And so my body still reacts to sleep deprivation with insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. And if you accrue that over time, it's a normal thing to some degree and it's it has a purpose, then but then you end up running into problems later. And then there's other interesting things related to how sleep deprivation might impact your appetite, 
And so again, if I am in an environment where I'm sleep deprived, perhaps it's because I'm in an uncertain environment, so I need to have energy. But in the current environment where food is readily available, my increased appetite might actually work against me. And so those are some examples of how, again, the chronic exposure to stressful experiences Mm -hmm. can short circuit or maybe kind of hijack some of these restorative processes Mm -hmm. that ultimately hurts our health. So in a circumstance, for instance, if somebody who is living in a world where there's bias against Mm -hmm. them, Mm -hmm. how does that play into it? Well, again, so just like feeling unsafe, uh, you could imagine the same kind of thing where if I am... So this is another important piece about social relationships and health and related to the smoking thing. You know, the reason why smoking is pernicious and and problematic is because it happens every day. And so... You can imagine the same thing happening if I'm in an environment where I feel biased, both explicitly, but also uh, where I, some of this may be internalized, where I don't view myself favorably because of what society has taught me. You could imagine those those same experiences on a day-to-day basis where I feel under threat. I'm worried that I'm going to do something that then uh, shows people that, yep, you know, people like me are not smart or they are not capable and that kind of thing. And every day of living in that manner activates my sympathetic nervous system, which then activates, you know, my immune system to be more vigilant. And I, that's my daily experience. Mm -hmm. And then that might have long-term cardiometabolic costs. Mm. So if we dissect your definition of social well-being Mm -hmm. and I want to make sure I don't forget some of the important aspects that you shared, which I felt, thought were so very insightful for me. It's the high-quality relationships that allows you to be able to feel like you can depend on someone, mm-hmm. that you can turn to them for help, that you can get the advice from them, and mm-hmm. then also that you can do the same back. Mm-hmm. Maybe not to the same person, but but maybe to another person. And I always sort of equate this to if I was on a deserted island, who would I want to end up Mm, with? Right, right. (laughs) And I'm just wondering, um, there's also the definition that you have a common, that you have common interests. Mm -hmm. So is there any data out there that talks about how to promote or reduce bias. Sure, right. And how would that be sort of just relying on what you've just Mm -hmm. described as the definition, Mm -hmm. is building those kinds of... Yeah. So what is it? I'd like to, again, if you think about, I'm using the lens of our kind of the the study of social relationships and this idea of being understood, for example, and... And valued. Yeah, understood. Would, yeah, That's yeah. so important. Yeah, and right? when you and when you imagine that you are working together towards a common goal, you know that brings with it some. Let's say, well, common values. Yeah, yeah, right. right. It, it if you're really, working on the same exactly. Thing. So I know that this person who's with me knows that I think X is important. That I think social justice is important, or the environment, or that I think uh, education is really important, and and I know that that person knows that, and because we work together on these common things, I know that that person values my contribution, for example, and maybe there there are times when in the process of working on these things together that 
I need, I need help from this person from time to time. And I know that that person can be there for me when I need it. And so I think there's definitely something to be said for working together for on common goals and objectives and cooperating around those things that I, that is sort of critical to fostering connection and critical to fostering feeling like you're, you know, included and combating, uh, you know, many of these sort of bias problems that we've been talking about. And again, if you think about it, small, we have all been small groups of people and where we were doing nothing but trying to solve common problems together, like what are we going to eat? Uh-huh. Are we going to stay safe? You know, what is our shelter going to look like? Mm-hmm. Um, wh- how can we keep everybody as sort of, you know, alive as possible? And so we were, you know, the, I'm not the one who's made this argument. There's been plenty of others to really talked about this. But, you know, the idea that we evolved as social species to solve problems together. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's something that in our kind of attempt to be self-reliant uh, ends up being lost in some right. ways. Right. And also our attempt to include others. Again, it's not enough to have everybody around the table. We all have to like work on something together around this table. Yeah. Well, the cultural part about being self-reliant, I mean, it's not completely adopted by everyone in the United States. I mean, we've got Mm -hmm. right many Mm -hmm. cultures that are much more collective. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah. So what are you seeing the difference What's the differences between a collective yeah. culture versus an individualistic culture? So some of it has to do with how you see yourself relative to other people. Mm-hmm. And so there are certainly some cultures where I'm not defined by standing apart from how I'm different from everybody, but I'm also defined by who I'm with, essentially, so that I am part and parcel of you know a bigger of a group of people and how I function in that group well it's really not about how I function in that group it's how we sort of function together mm-hmm. that's a lot of how I think about that is how and, and that's work from people like Hazel Marcus for example and so yeah you're right and that the, that idea that people are separate from others so independent you see that in some groups but there are other groups for instance and I know she's done work to this effect where more more blue collar, sort of lower income people in, in, in society who are lower income, for example, they do tend to see themselves as sort of interwoven with oh, one another. I didn't realize there so. was a socioeconomic yeah. Yeah, so there's aspect. an interesting socioeconomic aspect to oh, it. Yeah. Yeah. My observation, having taken care of um, predominantly Mexican mm-hmm. uh, American families, is mm-hmm. in the Mexican culture, mm-hmm. collect a collective mm-hmm. culture is much more dominant. Right, and yeah. Absolutely. Very much family focused, right. and, and yeah. not not necessarily just the nuclear family right. either. Right, and that's totally absolutely true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then and then what I know less of, and will be interesting to think about, is like if you looked at that across the entire spectrum within that culture in terms of socioeconomic yes. status, for example. I don't know. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. That'd be an interesting question. Yeah, um, but at least I know she's studied at least in the in the states. You do see, and again, some of this is also because who tends to be more lower income in the United States because of history and discrimination and prejudice. It tends to be underrepresented minority groups who also tend to have much more collectivistic beliefs mm-hmm. as well. From the cultural right. exactly. that right. aspect. Mm-hmm. Right. That's more room for research, right? Yeah. That's what, yeah. Every time you have a conversation with a researcher, right. you always come up with more questions. <laughs> right. Right. So right. That's the great thing about research, though. Yeah. Lots of questions. Um, lots of answers. 
And so, you know, speaking of sort of the new, sort of where we're heading, mm-hmm. you know, the smartphone, or some people call it the dumb phone, mm-hmm. I guess. I right, use right. that word. <laughs> but, you know, the not so smartphone. But what is it? You know, where where does this land in terms of yeah. the social well-being? And- right, right. I mean, it's certainly technology. It's certainly a tool. And just like any other technology or tool, it can be used in both the right and wrong ways. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges we face, um, I'm thinking a lot about some writing that some of my colleagues have done. So one of my co-authors on the American Psychologist paper where we were looking at social connections and health, he has a really nice piece coming out soon on smartphones and technology and relationships. And the way they describe it is kind of like, I guess a good analogy would be something like sugar. So sugar, processed refined sugar, is a technology. It's a tool that we use to make food. It's certainly something that would not have developed were it not for, you know, the industrial process, right? And it's something that, for better or for worse, we can easily misuse. And the way we misuse it is we hijack our existing circuitry or neural circuitry, our physiology, Sugar hijacks that, right? It's highly palatable. We like it. We have systems evolved to really want it because mm-hmm. we didn't get it very much when we were even evolving. And um, it also masks the flavor of salt. Right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it has all these things that it does that we want, and we have created a world where we are we're sort of hijacking and taking advantage of, of that in some ways. You can say that a food company, for instance, is taking advantage of that and making a high-density you know, processed food and testing out what flavors work, et cetera. So the reason I say sugar is because if we think about, you know, I alluded earlier to social relationships and social well-being as involving circuitry that includes pain and hunger and reward, and we have circuitry that is sort of built for social rewards. I mean, there's something highly rewarding about having a wonderful connection with somebody Mm -hmm. and being able to have a good conversation, feel understood, valued, and cared for, et cetera. And what the smartphone has done is it is kind of like sugar. It's, It's hijacking that circuitry in some ways. On one hand, you can hijack that circuitry for good. So if you've got someone who, so using sugar's analogy, Like if I've got a child who's really having trouble with gaining weight and in order to be healthy, like I can give them an insurer or some, you know, that has a lot of sugar to help them get the nutrients they need. Likewise, you know, if I have someone who's really socially isolated, like the smartphone is a really great way to kind of get them connected in some ways. But I think what people are finding is that the hijacking is, has much more cost right now particularly when there's cost to our sort of offline relationships. And if a smartphone can help us connect better with the people that we're, we're, we're with together, like offline, that's good. But when it disrupts those offline relationships, that's where it's a problem. And it's really good at doing that because it pushes all our buttons related to social connection, right? It makes it really easy for me to see what's happening with my friend in Pittsburgh that I haven't seen in a long time. And boy, look at those pictures. They're really interesting. Or, well, well, let me watch this video of my friend jumping into a pool. And that, unfortunately, can then take me out of my offline relationship, the person that I'm sitting with right now, Mm. and can make me less responsive to them. And their whole argument is that, Technology is a problem when you become less responsive to the people that you're actually sort of with physically, Mm. and that that's the problem that we have to reckon with. 
Wow. It's still good in terms of, it can be good in terms of deepening those relationships, mm-hmm. but but you have to kind of, on balance, there may be more of a problem right now than the deep than the benefits in terms of deepening. And then if you have wholesale replacement of offline relationships, that's even worse, right? So now my only social connections are online, right? And that's not and that's problematic. And that's what people are concerned about yeah. for college students, right? Which is nice. They're keeping up with yeah. their high school friends, right. but. They then don't get engaged with their immediate right. surroundings. Right. And in terms of developing skills and developing new in-person relationships, can that's what our brains evolved for. And that's to some degree what we probably want ultimately as a species. Although it can be uncomfortable to yeah. tr- create new friends. Exactly. Yeah. But again, yeah. like if we but we struggle through that, right? And yes. then we benefit through that struggle. That's right. And, and why do we benefit right. through that struggle? Why do we... Well, you learn how to become more adaptable to other people in your environment. You know, you learn how to... You, you can attune to people better in some ways. Which means you learn cues. Exactly. You learn uh-huh. cues. You learn what works, what doesn't work. You know, those kinds of things. But when... You know, likewise, I suppose... I'm trying to think of a good food analogy that involves sugar. <laughs> but, you know, sugar can, to some degree, be a little bit of a shortcut to flavor, so to speak, I guess. Uh-huh. Or lack um, of. I guess maybe one way to think about it would be, like, you're trying to, maybe, you decide not to try making the really awesome tasting mole because it's just too complicated. And instead, you just, you know, eat the candy bar. Uh-huh. Uh, when maybe, over the long term, it might be more beneficial to learn how to make the mole or something like right. that. <laughs> sort of like I used to make carrot cake, and then I decided I just like the frosting. So right, yes, yeah, so you just buy the frosting. I just, I just made the frosting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so they argue that this, they, they call, use this term technoference, that the, the big problem is when the phone takes us out of our ability mm. to be responsive to others. Well, you know, it concerns me, and I, I know it's a transitional period, but I feel that that's what's going on with the medical record, mm. the electronic medical yeah. record. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. As I uh, practice with the yeah. electronic medical record, I see how people... Oh, that's so interesting. The physicians yeah. are not yeah. able mm-hmm. to connect, and there is data out mm-hmm. there now that's reporting that physician burnout since... The yeah. electronic medical record has come around that yeah. it's huge. There's a huge burnout. And I think that's probably because physicians, really I mean, I, my hypothesis is that they're missing that social connection. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, then, sure, the patients are feeling the right. same way. But from a physician's point of view, it's really yeah. and, tough. And being a developing physician, you know, someone who's learning. So like a first or second year resident, you're not developing the Those ability, cues. the cues, to things mm. to attend to, the skills. That's a tough yeah. one. Yeah, it's especially a, in my my field, pediatrics, because oh, right. yeah. it's very much. I yeah. you always had to tell the residents yeah. when I was training them to trust your instincts. Right. You walk in, and some kid with 104 fevers going to ride through because it's a virus, right. and then the next one right. could be at death's door. Right, right. But you've got to. I pay know, attention. but and you know it, yeah, because yeah. you get good at it. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Exactly. Well, and the sort of depressing news about that is that, um, in terms of the t- technology piece, is that I don't. There haven't been as many studies of this yet, but from what I was reading, and I mean, it sort of jives with my experience too, is when we're on our phones. We're not really, or when we're typing on the electronic medical record, we're not really aware of how not responsive we're being, right? Mm. Because, you know, I'm doing something really important, right? 
I don't realize that I'm not being as responsive as I should be. Uh, and you see that in surveys. So I think it's something, you know, like a pretty low percentage of individuals describe that they are not mm. attending to people when they're on their phones. Yeah. You know, it's kind of the same thing. I'm trying to think of an analogy where, you know, we we often don't think we're doing something when in fact, you know, that's harmful when in fact we are. I, I feel like driving or something like that would be a good example. Very good yeah, example. Right. Because people think they can... Right. They're better uh, drivers. Or yeah. they can uh, text at yeah. stop signs and right. things like that. Right. Or helmet is, use, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I my daughter taught me way back before electronic me- medical records that I couldn't be on my computer and right, yeah, talk right, to her at yeah, the same right. time. <laughs> yeah, right. She was, and she still catches me sometimes when yeah. I'm on the phone with her. And she goes, what are you doing? Are you doing something else? Right. She can totally pick yeah, it up. Yeah, totally. So right. I'm busted. And I, I thank for, thankfully, she's very uh, acutely aware of yeah. those circumstances. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, I'd love to read that paper you just described mm-hmm. yeah, to me. I'll I think it. this um, information's cool. We'll have to have it. We'll have it online too. Yeah, it's so freely available too it. through uh, this service or this um, site called PsychArts or PsyArchive. Okay, so preprints. It's fantastic. A pre-print. Yeah. And getting to papers, your one of your recent mm-hmm. papers, you talk about the relationship between between culture and social mm-hmm. support. Yeah, yeah, across different communication contexts and face-to-face and text messaging. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. So this was actually, this is a project by a developmental psychology student who came, so she was really interested, she had a long-standing interest in culture and communication uh, and what forms of communication might be more beneficial to others. So one of the really interesting findings in work on culture and social support is, you know, the idea of asking for help, depending on what culture you're in, can be very threatening. It's just like something you don't do. So if you tend to be in an interdependent culture, so um, Asian cultures tend to be kind of the prototype here, you know, asking for help is incredibly threatening. Mm. And some really interesting work actually done by a former colleague here at UCLA, Shelley Taylor, finding that... If you were so participants who were randomly assigned to either write a letter asking for help versus just describe the people in your social network versus don't do anything at all, those folks did that. So they either wrote a letter asking for help, they either wrote a letter describing their social network, or they didn't do anything at all. They were then asked to give a speech and, a, and, and do some mental arithmetic, a typical laboratory stressor. And oh, really? The, yeah. Yes. Arithmetic? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that take relaxes the, me. Take, take, it's not supposed to. Yeah. So take the number 1,792 and subtract 13. So just keep doing it. So in this study, there was a group that was either Asian or Asian American, and there were also European Americans as well. And again, they were randomly assigned to one of these three groups. And the really interesting thing was for the Asian Asian American group, writing a letter asking someone for help, those individuals showed physiological responses to the stressor that looked just the same as people who didn't have to write anything at all. But the European Americans, they showed less of a physiological mm. response to the stressor. Wow. And then for the European Americans, asking for help was related to sort of lower physiological responses. And I don't remember what happened to the European Americans who were just thinking about their social group. So all of this, and there's some other data to suggest that, again, um, for certain groups, asking for help it's sort of culturally inappropriate and mm. so potentially more stressful. So what about instant messaging? 
mm. because it's not quite the same. So part of this might be just the face-to-face thing, me mm. making a request for help. Even a letter yeah. is considered face-to-face. So I guess the letter was less face-to-face, certainly. Uh-huh. But I think probably the letter was less superficial than the instant messaging. Uh-huh. So that's where the instant messaging becomes interesting because uh-huh. it you don't have to be, you're, one, you're not face-to-face. And then two, I mean, I think there's something about kind of the act of writing the letter right. and more being, formal. Right, it's more formal, yeah. exactly. That was problematic. So, what she was really interested in testing was whether face to face versus instant messaging versus no support at all before you do this speech and math stressor, which of these would sort of buffer psychological and biological or physiological responses to the stressor? And would you see more benefits for one group versus another? Now, what we ended up, I think, because of our recruitment, what we looked at was actually instead independent versus interdependent self-construals, which is exactly what we were talking about earlier with collectivism versus Mm. individualism. Mm -hmm. So if you see yourself as apart from others versus to what degree you see yourself as connected with others. And the interesting thing there was that we saw that Well, we saw that face-to-face and and instant messaging, you saw sort of similar benefits in terms of reducing anxiety. Mm. Um, So that was sort of good to know. And then we also saw that for people who were more independent, actually, like who viewed, who sort of valued seeing themselves as apart from others, that's where the, I believe the, I want to say the face-to-face support was kind of most beneficial in buffering their stress responses. Mm. And um, we didn't see anything for being more interdependent, but some of that might have been related to the sample that we had. And I, I'm trying to remember what happened for the Asian Asian American group. I think their face-to-face and instant messaging ended up looking somewhat similar. So mm-hmm. all of this suggesting that, again, for some groups, some types of support might be, and, and requesting support, um, some modalities may be more helpful than mm-hmm. others, and maybe taking some of the psychological distance might be more helpful on the instant messaging side. So there's an example of where this tool could potentially have benefits depending on what social group that you're in. And so moving to other forms mm-hmm. of communication like social media, mm-hmm. what would what do you think might yeah, occur so in those I think the challenge settings? so the challenge with that, I think that's a little bit different than sort of an instant messaging platform, right? right? Because now you know that's more bi-directional whereas social media I think the challenge is that you have more of this, I guess, what I'll call the sugar effect, which is uh-huh. like you can always come back to it. Uh-huh. It, it, it does. It's it's something that's persistent, and so it can kind of take you out of your immediate experience. Whereas uh-huh. instant messaging, like it's still a kind of very right. intentional Con- kind experience. of conversation, right? Right. Yeah. yeah, and so that's kind of one of the, I guess, for lack of a better term, kind of dependent or addictive aspects of social media. So Peter, he developed a measure of digital support. And one of the things that is different from social media compared to all other forms of support is what we're terming response support. So that's likes, basically. Uh Uh, And so I say, you know, I write something, I post something, and I get a bunch of likes. And I think the issue there also is that hijacks to some degree are kind of circuits that evolved for processing reward and and social reward. Uh, there's some data from one of our colleagues in developmental psychology showing that in areas of the brain that sort of respond to things like pictures of food and money mm. and that kind of thing, you see greater responses when you see a picture that's got more likes on it 
compared to ones that don't. Mm. And so clearly that phenomenon of likes, of res- what we're calling response support, takes advantage of the circuitry of mm. kind of highly rewarding, of valuing things that are highly mm. rewarding, kind of like sugar might, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. And so is that explain about social media? How mm-hmm. does that become addicting? I think because we, it's so easily accessible. Uh-huh. Um, it's easy to get a quick hit, so to speak, of social reward, right? And what's the social reward? So um, I got a bunch of likes on a picture oh, that uh-huh. I just posted, for instance, uh-huh. of something I ate or of me doing something. Uh-huh. And so then we kind of keep coming back to that. And again, they're sort of empty calories in a sense. Uh-huh. Um, like I feel like people like or validate me to some degree, but it's not the same as right. a one-on-one or, you know, of an experience with a group of actual physical right. people. You might not want to have them all on your desert island. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or that great New Yorker cartoon that exactly. had the one person right. in the pews of a person's funeral, and they and they said, oh, he had 2,000 friend, Facebook yeah, friends. Yeah, right, 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 exactly. <laughs> but only yeah. one person shows up at your funeral. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And again, I think sort of viewing, you know, it's not like they're empty calories all the time, but when someone's just posting things just to get likes. I mean, I've seen examples of this in the movies, you know, these sort of extreme examples. You can see where it becomes empty calorie-like. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Well, um, it's been an incredible conversation. So I'd like to just wrap it up with uh, something that I'm sure everyone would love to hear from you, which is what would you consider to be the most important steps that people can mm-hmm. take to improve their own social relationships? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll go back to what I sort of started with, which I think is always good advice, which is, and I, I'm, I'm sort of stealing this a little bit from some of my colleagues in psychology because they kind of came up with this first. It's Tom Bradbury and Ben Carney. They, they study couples and they would hold workshops for couples Uh, people who are interested in relationships. And what I like about this advice is that it's consistent with what we study in relationship science. And it's very simple, which is just to find ways to communicate every day to the people that are around you that you understand and that you value and that you care about them. And that, that you communicate that in ways that they can see, as opposed to, I mean, it's great to help people out kind of in ways they don't notice. But if you kind of make yourself seen and, and let them know that you you get them, uh, that you care about what they do or or that they're in the world and that you value them as a person, that's something that, you know, if, you, if we think about not smoking every day is important, this would be something if you can do that every day would help really foster mm. these kinds of high quality connection. And you get that. You you receive something from that. Right. By um, giving. Exactly. Yes. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. There was a really great article that, is it Steve Lopez from LA Mm -hmm. Times? And he was interviewing this woman in her 90s. And she has on her business card, too blessed to be stressed. Uh Right. (laughs) And having that attitude. And her nickname was Happy. Yeah, right, right. Well, and if you think about resilience, right, Uh you know, part of why she's probably she can't be stressed is because she is too blessed. She has built up this resource of yes. people and that kind of thing. And it, and it can help you withstand the sort of slings and arrows of everyday life. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah. And he, and apparently she, up until recently, she was driving people 
other people to church because uh-huh. they couldn't make it with her. Right. They couldn't drive anymore, but she right. was there pulling away at 90 years old. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, you know, Ted, it's just remarkable the work you're doing. And oh, I just sure. find each time I talk to you more pearls of wisdom and also things I can just apply to my own daily mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. So really appreciate Well, the feeling is mutual as well. Oh. I always learn more from, and, and I, I sort of get more inspiration from interacting with you as oh, well. Oh, so thank you, Ted. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for everything yeah. you do here at well, UCLA. Well, thank you for everything you do. <laughs> thank you for tuning in to Live Well Today. Today's podcast was brought to you by UCLA's Semmel Healthy Campus Initiative Center. To learn more about Ted's research, please visit our website at healthy.ucla.edu backslash livewellpodcast. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, make sure to follow our Twitter and Instagram at livewell underscore UCLA.